the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there's a guy named Ray Kurzweil who's a a big higher up at Google. He's an inventor and a futurist. Uh, He believes that we will achieve the singularity with what he calls indefinite lifespan sometime in the next 30 years or so. If you use Gmail, Uh, This is the guy who invented the little auto-reply messages that just sort of pop up that sometimes make sense. Uh, He's a total genius. He's made like well over 100 predictions about technology and the future of human life, and he's averaging about a B-plus right now. In the late 90s, he published a book about the future of humanity and artificial intelligence called The Age of Spiritual Machines. And in that book, he says that spiritual experience is, quote, a feeling of transcending one's everyday physical and mortal bounds to sense a deeper reality. And he goes on to say that he believes that one day, 21st century machines will go to church and meditate and pray and all of that stuff. 
I watched part of an interview with him uh, that he gave at South by Southwest about three years ago, and his optimism for human advancement and positive progressivism in technology remains completely undaunted. Truly, truly, I tell you, he might say, unless you upload your consciousness to the cloud, you will cease to exist. While Ray Kurzweil is working within a technological framework that would be difficult for his predecessors to imagine, right, the, the amount of technological advancement that we've had in the last hundred or so years, his impulse to leverage human intellect into self-actualized transcendence in the quest for eternal life is a tale that is nearly as old as time. Since our first parents in the garden, humanity has struggled with the impulse to take and grasp rather than receive and give thanks. Adam and Eve were given the gift of being. They were made as icons of God who created them. But rather than participate with that creator God in a relationship of trust and love, they sought to thrust themselves beyond their limitations and they sought to be divine on their own terms. We'll come back to this in a moment. In our gospel lesson this evening, Jesus hits us with a rapid-fire set of incredibly counterintuitive ideas, ideas that challenge our entire framework for what our life is all about. Before we get into Jesus' words, I don't want you to miss the symbolism that, that John has set up surrounding his speech. We're told that the Greeks have heard of Jesus, and they approach his apostles, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And just as we saw recently, the apostles were the ones who took the bread and the fish of Christ's Eucharisted meal out to the people. And so here, the apostolic community is the place where seekers come to see Jesus. He's already being mediated in a certain sense by his apostles, right? The Gentiles are seeking the Messiah, and so they come to the apostles. And it is in response to this request to see him that Jesus makes all of these statements, these stunning statements, and effectively what Jesus is saying, oh, they'll see me. Really soon, they'll see me. So there's a lot happening in what Jesus has to say here, so we're going to tick through a few of them rather quickly. First of all, Jesus refers to himself in this passage as the Son of Man. This is one of his favorite self-designated titles. Son of Man is a title that originates in the Hebrew Scriptures, and in Hebrew it is literally Ben Adam, the son of Adam, right? Which should clue us in that this title is connected to the promises given to Adam and Eve that a child of theirs would overcome the serpent. And that this, this thrusting into death and chaos of the whole world that they have accomplished in their rebellion would somehow be undone. In seeking a self-generated transcendence, Adam and Eve failed in their role as the son and daughter of God. And now with each passing generation, with each son of Adam born, there is this hope, right? At the very beginning, Eve gives birth to a son, and she thinks, oh, this, this is going to be the change. This is the thing that God told us about. And what happens? Murder, fratricide right away. And with each passing generation, there's hope followed by disappointment that this son would have been the one 
to repair our relationship with God. You skip ahead many centuries from the garden to the book of Daniel, and the family that God has chosen out of all of the nations of the earth to make his name and salvific work famous, the family of Abraham, has shown itself to be yet another generation of disappointment. After years of injustice and flagrant disregard for God's desires, the people have finally been carted off as prisoners to a foreign empire. And Daniel is one of these prisoners. It's in the context of a vision that Daniel is given of pagan nations that will continue to rise up and topple one another and who will rule over God's people until God himself rises up in judgment to bring freedom to his people. It's in that context that the Son of Man, as a title, is given a new dimension. Daniel tells us, I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, the hope and promise given to Adam and Eve is still on the books. And Daniel is given a glimpse of its heavenly reality as he sees the Son of Man. Now, centuries after Daniel's vision, Christ is on the scene, and people from other nations have arrived asking after him. And what Jesus is telling his apostles is that the vision that Daniel had of the Son of Man being given dominion and glory, it's all about to happen. And that's when things get weird. Several of you are in the early stages of wedding planning. Congrats. Try not to get stressed out. So how does that start? You got engaged. I mean, you know, it starts before then, but eventually you got engaged. And so you say to your family and your friends, the hour has come. Now, caterers. Clothing designers, florists, venues, musicians, pomp, glory. Let's get this party going. Jesus says, okay, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Coronation day is what we should all be thinking. And then Jesus uses one of his intro phrases that we translate as verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. And what it means is, listen, 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 listen. What I'm going to say next is key to everything. Jesus has just announced Coronation Day, and then he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This statement, which is so incongruous with everything that we are expecting, is near the central core of Jesus' message. And it runs counter not just to our expectations of a king who will have dominion and glory over all peoples and nations, but to our entire sense of our lives in the world. We're drawn to fireworks, the glittery, the flashy, the quick, and the obvious, and we see death as an ending, a finality, a ceasing of all of the big and grandiose things we have done or planned to do here. But Christ celebrates the hiddenness of burial. 
the slow, imperceptible work of a seed dying down in the dirt in order to sprout up and be transformed into something much greater than its single, solitary self. Jesus is, of course, speaking of his death. And he descends into the grave before sprouting up in resurrection, bringing along with him the dead, having trampled down death by death, and upon those in the tombs he has bestowed life. In the hiddenness of his sepulcher, the eternally begotten Son is working out the salvation of his icon creatures so mired in death and sorrow. And I think here we need to pause and remind ourselves that this powerful, slow hiddenness is still the way in which Christ's Spirit most often works. It is incredibly destructive to assume that the Spirit always and only shows himself in ecstatic bursts of sign gifts. The Spirit of Christ is at work in our gathered midst as we implore him to condescend to us and make the bread and the wine to become for us Christ's very body and blood, to be a meal of real communion with the triune God. And in a certain sense, the Spirit's work in the Eucharist could be seen as a metaphor for his work in our lives. It's not often noticeable. It's not often explosive. Instead, it's often hidden within the forms of our ordinariness, just as he hides Christ in the form of bread. The Spirit works down in the dirt of our existence, away from our watchfulness, working new life in the midst of our death. As Robert Capon used to say, because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that just makes you his cup of tea. But being dead in a world that insists on living on its own terms is not easy. It's about as difficult to grasp as Jesus' own insistence that what is about to happen to him is his moment of glorification, his moment of ascendancy. He's not insane. And he's not a superhero like Superman who only looks human. He speaks clearly that he is deeply, crushingly in the throes of depression. My soul is troubled, he says. And St. John has done an incredible bit of theological interpretation in the way that he writes this story for us, combining elements of the transfiguration with elements from the Garden of Gethsemane. Glory and deep psychological distress all swirled together. When Jesus speaks of being lifted up from the earth, he is talking about exaltation, but he's talking about the exaltation that comes as he is lifted up on a crude cross, the weight of his entire body tearing at the nails in his flesh, collapsing his lungs. It is in this exaltation, this startling violence met with meekness. This depth of suffering and isolation, it's in this moment that Christ will draw all of humanity to himself. And I will put no limits on his words here because he himself speaks without measure. All. He will draw all of humanity to himself 
in this moment of exaltation, the moment of his death. So, when the Greeks come to us, when the people of Portland come to us and say, okay, we want to see Jesus, what will we show them? Ten steps to a successful life? How to have a happy marriage? Upbeat positivity? Or will we show them Christ crucified in agony until the end of the world? We must never cease to speak and sing of the Christ who revealed his glory in his ignominious death. The Christ who displayed his coronation in his crucifixion. The Christ who offered the seed of his life to be buried in the dark earth that innumerable fruit might spring forth. And when our neighbors and friends and coworkers say, boy, we just don't get it, we can respond, yeah, me neither. And then we can tell them the rest of what Robert Capon used to say. And I'll end with this. Robert Capon says, trust him. And when you have done that, you are living the life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how many suspicions that you have bought a poke with no pig in it, no matter how much heaviness and sadness your lapses, vices, indispositions, and bratty whining may cause you, you simply believe that somebody else, capital S, capital E, somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right. And you just say thank you and shut up. The whole slop closet full of mildewed performances, which is all you have to offer, is simply your death. It is Jesus who is your life. If he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly, therefore, and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, or intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst, there it is again, all you can be is dead. And for him who has the resurrection and the life, that makes you just his cup of tea. Amen.